She began her career as one of Hollywood's brightest young stars in blockbuster roles, but suddenly, out of almost nowhere, she died. What led this once promising and charismatic actress to her ultimate demise? Was it drugs, health problems, or was something more sinister at play? This week's episode is Brittany Murphy, Part 1. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Just want to apologize for my bladder wrecking our show last week. Oh, I mean, we we take we can we're allowed to take time off. I think so. I posted yes. on my Instagram, so I had a kidney stone, which I had never had before, and didn't know what was happening to my body. So, how, how do you feel now? So good. After you know what, my I had had to email work and everything because I had to cancel a conference call, and my boss was very kind and said I had that, and you know. It was the worst pain of my life, but luckily it was gone within like just over 24 hours. So hopefully it won't last. They warned me at the hospital. They're like, you know, if it's more than 36 hours, you're going to have to have surgery. But it was exactly 24 hours. It made its entrance into the world. And after that, I was fine. But it was the worst pain ever. And I just it was new pain. You know, that's the scary kind of pain. Something you've never experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Right? My dad, I remember in high school once I came home, my dad was doubled over. on the floor and he was like i think you're gonna have to take me to the hospital and it was a kidney stone and Mm -hmm. uh one of our good friends kyle gets them all the time too so i have never had one but i have heard that they're very painful drink your water kids yeah is that uh what causes it dehydration yeah dehydration and then mine was the calcium kind so i think that i drink a lot of perrier normally i was drinking soleil but because of not going to the grocery store, I was ordering Perrier on the internet and it w- it has calcium in it. And then I also have this electrolyte drink that I was drinking for running that has calcium in it. Apparently also my doctor said that if you have a lack of magnesium, that can cause issues. So mm. it's just kind of like a general imbalance. And all- and just on- coupled with that is instead of drinking still water, I was drinking a boatload of Perrier. So I have switched back to regular non-fizzy good water old, good old tap water i do have some waterloo waterloo doesn't have any it does not I have like a significant waterloo. source of calcium so i'm drinking a solil right now oh, very lucky very solil i gave one. myself a um hernia once from uh energy drinks no way yeah I knew a friend that got an ulcer from those. Oh, I'm She's, sorry, not a not a hernia, an ulcer. I got. I just it, thought yes. you chugged a, a yeah, energy drink so hard through my like, intestine. <laughs> <laughs> I smashed the can and ate it, and the shards of metal just ripped apart my intestine. It was uh, it, it was, was a an monster. Ulcer. Yeah, it was a literal and monster. It punched its way out. <laughs> it was awful, though. I still, t- from time to time. Um, we'll feel it. It's just like this intense burning in your stomach that Oof. you feel like there's a volcano in the pit of your stomach. But that being said, we, uh, you know, sometimes we got to take time off for you know what? mental health, physical health, just because we need a break. So we want to. Yeah. Cause, yeah. And then we come back and we have a two parter on a famous actress that met a very young, untimely death. A huge Brittany Murphy fan. I love her. Uh, Clueless is great. Holds up. I was obsessed with... This is embarrassing. I I went and saw that in the theaters in high school. Vividly remember it. so obsessed with Clueless. You can ask my mom. I had a t-shirt that said Clueless on it that I wore for picture day. So like my school picture, whatever, third or fourth or fifth grade, I can't remember, has says Clueless on my t-shirt. I had a poster in my room of like the isms from the show. Uh I had the clueless Barbie dolls. I had Cher and Dion and Amber, except for the Cher was the TV show Cher, which was not Alicia Silverstone, which I didn't love, but it was fine. There were books. I wonder if I still have those books at my mom's house. They had like novelizations of stories about these characters, like after the movie. I was like where they went afterwards, other adventures that they went on. And I wore knee socks and I and feather pins. I like used feather pins. Oh, I kind of dressed like Alicia Silverstone in high school. That was kind of my aesthetic. Yeah. I I mean, I I would go, I would 
vacillate between that and then just like jeans and a t-shirt but Mm -hmm. rachel in friends mid-90s alicia silverstone was kind of my aesthetic in high school like plaid skirts Mm -hmm. nice mary james i Mm -hmm. did um yes uh yeah so and then like the little white baby doll shirt with the little like spaghetti strap Mm -hmm. tank over you know what i'm talking about she wears that movie a lot too yeah I um I also was in my younger days told I looked like her, so maybe I leaned Same. into that quite a bit. But yeah, I liked a, uh, that closet, man. Still jealous. Oh yeah, her whole house. I'd like oh, any yeah. movie where it's just like rich kids. <laughs> I like I like TV shows about rich kids, like The OC and Nine Two One Zero and all of that, where it's just like following these kids, these rich, privileged. The lives of these rich, privileged kids. Some kids in California. Yeah. Yeah. They're always in LA too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Ty Frazier was a very fun character. She was on Clueless. She was very cute. And that was kind of how Brittany seemed like she was in real life. Yeah. I think very charismatic, bubbly, you know, dorky when she's dancing at the dance with Paul Rudd at the concert with Paul Rudd and just (laughs) she falls down the stairs. (laughs) She's like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great. Well, and it was very shocking. I remember when she died and everyone mm-hmm. was just like, what? Like, mm-hmm. anytime a young actor dies and it's not suicide, you're like, what the hell happened? How? How could this yeah, happen? Like, how? what What could have gone on if you're seemingly healthy 32-year-old? Well, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that. Her life, how she got there, and then... What 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 it could have been? Her, first of all, I've only used this word once in the entire time we've been podcasting to describe an individual. I'm using it again in this episode. To me, Simon Monchak <laughs> is a schlub. <laughs> he is schlubby looking. Yes. He's, he's very much a schlub. And I just want to say, Brittany, what were you doing, girl? As a charismatic and charming young woman who's dated schlubs let me tell you you're fighting inner demons and that's like one way <laughs> well is like also a lot of people in the said barrel. he was very controlling and emotionally abusive and perhaps brainwashing her to a degree so a lot of it may have not really been within her control but that's true we'll see we will get into it so this is part one on November 10th, 1977, Brittany Ann Bertolotti was born as the only daughter to Sharon Murphy and Angelo Bertolotti in Atlanta, Georgia. Angelo, known to his friends as AJ, was a larger-than-life character. He was a World War II veteran, worked as a mortician for a brief period of time, and had strong ties to the mafia. He was originally from New York, but after his time in the military, made his living as a nightclub owner in Florida and Georgia. It was at one of these clubs where he met Sharon an employee of the club that would soon become his wife. The interview on ID is really good when he's like, yeah, I was in the mob. <laughs> he does not <laughs> no make any apologies for it. And I have to respect that. Yeah, he's just he's like, like, yeah, oh, yeah, I was in organized crime. Uh, Sharon knew I didn't try. It's like he doesn't deny it. Nope. He did his Tell time. Money. He did his, yeah, he did his stint in prison, didn't rat anybody out. And he's like, mm-hmm. this is what I did. Mm hmm. Sharon fell hard and fast for Angelo, intrigued by his mysterious and dangerous ways. The two married and Sharon soon became pregnant. However, shortly after Brittany turned one years old, Angelo was sentenced to 12 years in prison on three criminal felony convictions, preventing him from being able to spend much time with his new family. The following year, when Brittany turned two, Sharon and Angelo divorced. In 1980, Sharon moved to Edison, New Jersey with her young daughter. From an early age, Brittany displayed an affinity for the arts, with her father calling her a very precocious child. In 1982, at the young age of four, Brittany began her training in singing, dancing, and acting at the Vern Fowler School of Dance and Theater Arts in Colonia, New Jersey. Bitten by the theater bug, Brittany declared when she was nine years old to her mother that she wanted to be on television. Footage of a young Brittany showed her as a fearless and charismatic personality on camera. I don't really know what the footage is from, but it's on ID and a couple yeah. of the documentaries. She's just so cute, little bitty, and just going, my name's Brittany, and I'm going to be famous. And just It no looks st- almost like they were at Universal Studios mm-hmm. or somewhere like that, and somebody doing 
interviews around the park was like, hey, you want to give this a shot? And she's just like, sure, I'll do it. Yeah, she's very bubbly. No fear, like being in front of people or speaking in front of people. Just before Brittany was to begin high school, the mother and daughter pair headed to Hollywood. After spending so much time together, the two declared they were soulmates, and those around them claimed they acted more like sisters or best friends than mother and daughter. Brittany later said in an interview, When I asked my mom to move to California, she sold everything and moved out here for me. She always believed in me. While Angelo was rumored to be estranged from his daughter at this time, other sources claimed that he provided the financial help needed to make the cross-country move. So this is when things get a little weird. Sharon claimed and still claims that he was completely absent from Brittany's life, that he just ditched them. But he claims, as well as others close to him, that he still had a relationship with his daughter, mm-hmm. albeit it, he didn't get to see her as much as Sharon, and still like sent them money and helped financially provide for them. So they, uh, the parents had a, a messy divorce and a messy relationship, to say the least. Well, and it's kind of the beginning of Sharon having her own perception that she interprets as reality of things that yeah, she's, sort of a, she's a bit unhinged yeah you sort of see it throughout Brittany's life and then since she's passed away sharon says this happened this thing is true and they're like well here's like evidence that it didn't and she's like well it is it's true and it happened like she has yeah. she doesn't care about reality she cares about what she thinks is real mm-hmm. so in her mind she raised her all alone and had no help right exactly Once Brittany found success in acting, she began paying for family expenses, which shifted the power dynamic between her and her mother. At 13, she landed roles in sitcoms and commercials, but her big break came when she landed the role of Ty Frazier in the 1995 cult classic Clueless. Critics at the time praised Brittany's performance as a goofy and lovable Ty, even saying that she outshined the movie's star, Alicia Silverstone. Notable movie critic Roger Ebert often gushed over Britney's comedic talents, oftentimes comparing her to the legendary Lucille Ball. She is really funny in that movie, though. She's <laughs> like, uh, I think everybody is funny in oh, that the, movie. It's so good. When it's, she's like, it's oh. great. Just her sitting on the couch, kicking her little feet, singing the Mento song. And then she's like, fresh and full of life. And then she goes, he goes, I'll hope to see you later. And she goes, I hope not sporadically. Yeah. <laughs> Just adorable. It's I'm going to have to watch that soon. Just as long as his you-know-what isn't crooked. I just, like, Mm -hmm. love that movie. (laughs) However, Britney's performance as an ugly duckling and clueless seemed to follow her in her career. Determined to become an even bigger star, Britney lost weight and dyed her hair blonde. Unsurprisingly, that plan worked, and Hollywood began casting her in more lead roles. However, her physical transformation was so dramatic that it fueled rumors of anorexia or possible drug use. Offers soon came pouring in and allowed Britney to showcase and explore her range of talents. Her ditzy and lovable performance in Clueless was just one of her many characters. She poised herself as a dramatic actress opposite Michael Douglas in the 2001 film Don't Say a Word. The following year, critics praised her role as Alex in the gritty film Eight Mile. In 2003, following the success of Eight Mile, Britney bought a $3.5 million mansion, formerly owned by Britney Spears, in the Hollywood Hills. That's kind of the L.A. thing, right? To just be like, this was actually owned by whatever, Michael Douglas or Britney Spears or whoever. And then you feel, oh, I'm on that level. Like, I'm on yeah. the Britney Spears level. I imagine if you can buy a home that Britney Spears lived in, it does something for your ego. Mm-hmm. Also, Eight Mile, great movie. <laughs> I... Ooh, if I have seen it, it was when it first came out, and I have Ooh. not seen it since. I have not revisited that since... The mid-2000, probably. She was great in it. Eminem was great in it. I like anything where uh, rap battles are happening. Yeah. Bat- battles. I like dance battles. I like rap battles. <laughs> I, like, I love step up. I love cheerleading battles. Any movie where people are battling in that kind of like creative way, very mm-hmm. much my thing. But there is a sex scene between her and Eminem that is... Horny. Dude. Is it realistic? Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's gritty. It's gritty. (laughs) If anything, just rewatch it for that, for that scene. Uh, Paris is like, what do you want to watch tonight? Fast forward to the sex scene. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, uh, go about 47 minutes into eight (laughs) mile. We don't need to watch the beginning. Wait, wait, wait. It's a rap battle. Pause it. I want to watch this part. (laughs) 
Britney showed off her action movie chops in Sin City and was recognized for her realistic performance in Girl Interrupted as Daisy Randone, a young woman who struggled with abuse, addiction, and mental health. Her voice was forever immortalized in King of the Hill as Hank and Peggy's niece Luann for the duration of the series and as Joseph Gribble for the first five seasons of the show. I love there's one where she accidentally joins a cult and she really shines in that episode. Is okay. that the one she was nominated and maybe even won an Emmy for one of her performances? Oh, I don't know which one it was. That was one that I have recently watched, though, and it's very funny. And she's like thinks that she's joining kind of like a sorority and it's very clearly a cult and he has to come and like get her out of it but she's you know what she's great as that is there that much difference between a cult and a sorority i don't know (laughs) i've never been in either but on paper they seem similar they cost a lot of money you wear a lot of the same clothes there are rituals oh no i'm seeing it (laughs) while britney was primarily known for her acting chops she was also a gifted and trained singer she told mtv news My singing voice isn't like my speaking voice. I've always just kept it secret and never taken credit because I wanted to learn how to work behind the microphone in a recording studio. And some of the singers don't even know it was me recording on their albums. In the early 1990s, she was in a band with fellow actor Eric Balfour, best known for playing opposite Jessica Biel in the 2003 remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and for his recurring role in the TV drama 24. She had a chart-topping dance hit with Paul Oakenfold in 2006 and was featured on several hip-hop albums. Totally never knew this about her until the the research for this. Yeah. And she sings in Clueless, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the Mentos song, but even then you're like, she's got a good voice. Yeah, she's melodic. She has kind of a sing-songy voice. Yeah, that's true. And when she was 12, one of her big roles, too, was in, I can't remember which Arthur Miller play it was. But she was, so she had like a theater background Mm -hmm. as well. She was a triple threat. Mm -hmm. In 2006, the star-studded computer animated film Happy Feet debuted, in which Britney played the role of Gloria. It was here she was really able to showcase her vocal talents, covering Queen's Somebody to Love and Earth, Wind & Fire's Boogie Wonderland. In an interview with MTV News, Britney said of her role as Gloria, Oddly enough, of all the characters I've played, Gloria is the most like me. She's a penguin. Director George Miller always wanted one person to do both the speaking and the singing. I said, I can sing, and I asked him to give me a shot. I don't think he took me very seriously because most actors say they can do most things. However, after playing the director some CDs of her singing jazz, Miller was impressed and was happy to let Britney belt it out on the big screen. Composer John Powell even took Britney's suggestion to turn Somebody to Love into a gospel rendition, paying homage to her Baptist upbringing. I don't love Happy Feet. I don't think I've ever seen it. It came out at a time when it like, what I mean, I had just finished high school, was in freshman in college. You know, it wasn't like I was, everyone was my you age you going to see Happy you Feet. going to go see Happy Feet on date no, night? No, I, I wasn't a kid. I didn't have kids. You know, I wasn't a rent. like I had a little sister or something. So I was like, there's really no reason for me to see it. And it wasn't like Toy Story where I'd seen the others and I was into the franchise. Right. The only reason i've recently tried to watch this was because of ella because she likes penguins so the other day i was like oh we'll put on happy feet it was either happy feet or happy feet too but it was it was a bit unsettling the animation and that they were being kind of like sexual <laughs> they were like penguins. i don't know it was weird and it was sometimes movies like that where it's just like jam-packed with stars Mm -hmm. don't work like on paper you're like this this is gonna be great there's gonna Mm -hmm. be like eight thousand big names in this but then it's like ah it doesn't work it's like uh nobody can shine it's because there's too many you know there's no one but it was sex sex penguins i never would have guessed it some reason and i could be wrong because we only watched like she was not into it either ella wasn't so we turned it off but it was weird there was some song at the beginning where like these two penguins were like getting together and being like romantic and it was just it was bizarre the penguin made you know what good for her britney britney shined in her role and so That's 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 all that matters well it appeared that the movie roles weren't the only things to which britney felt a connection she seemed to fall for her male co-stars as well. While filming Eight Miles, she and co-star Eminem struck up a romance. When she starred in the fun romantic comedy Just Married with Ashton Kutcher in 2003, the two also began a real-life romance. 
In an interview at a press junket for Just Married, Brittany explained how her friendship with Ashton on set blossomed into romance after the cameras stopped. We were not a pair until, I would say, 10 or 11 months after the making of the film. None of these relationships lasted, however, and after several months, Brittany would break them off and move on. While filming the rom-com Little Black Book in 2006, Brittany met and fell in love with Joe Macaluso, production assistant also working on the film. However, this relationship was also not meant to be, and the couple ended things nine months later. Less than a year later, in 2007, Brittany once again became engaged, this time to Simon Monjack, a British writer, filmmaker, and movie executive, eight years her senior. Simon was well known for his work on the film Factory Girl, a biopic about Edie Sedgwick, model and muse to Andy Warhol. At their first meeting, Simon and Brittany discussed the script for a possible film project. According to ID's documentary, Brittany Murphy and ID Murder Mystery, after the meeting, Simon called his mother Linda and told her, I've met this crazy girl, Mom. She's a crazy, crazy girl, but I think I'm in love with her. She's an amazing woman, and I'm falling for her now. Friends of Brittany and industry insiders weren't as happy, however, as Simon was a rumored con man, according to the Daily Beast, whose nickname around Hollywood was Conjack. Sweet burn. <laughs> Conjack? Sweet Conjack burn on Conjack. A, Conjack's a sweet burn. They're like Simon Monjack, more like Simon Conjack. Simon Conjack. You know the first <laughs> producer that came up with that just had to, he broke his arm high-fiving himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, that went on all the forums. But it Lots was kind of, of emails went out. It wasn't just like one or two people he had crossed. It was a, according to these articles that we read, it's, it was kind of, oh, that's the con man guy. Like oh, everyone yeah. kind of just he, knew that. He had a terrible reputation. Nevertheless, the two fell into a whirlwind romance and dated for a few months before getting married less than a year after meeting. Though it seemed impulsive, Simon's mother told I.D. that she accepted it because Simon seemed truly happy and in love. The two moved in together to Brittany's Hollywood mansion. But the newlyweds were not alone. Brittany's mother, Sharon, was also their roommate. It kind of, they were kind of a package deal. I mean, I they think... Were, you had I mean, to he know. Knew, he knew getting into it. We'll get to it in a minute. I think he was. He think he was fine with that. I think he just well, wanted to move into that Hollywood Hills mansion, trying to get in that Britney Spears house. Didn't matter who who was there, but yeah, she. I mean, she was the breadwinner for sure, and by far, her and her mom had this relationship that was more like sisters or friends than a mother daughter. So, you know, the lines get blurred there as to. Yeah boundaries and everything like that and before you know it your uh your new husband's moving into the same house that you share with your mom i'm sure that it was huge so yeah you could stay on your own sides and everything like that well and the the as far as the breadwinner after she died so very shortly after she died when he started doing interviews he kind of said oh no no i was the one bringing in money but there's no evidence of any i mean he wasn't working on hollywood projects or anything but he alleges that he was oh, no, her career wasn't going very well, and I was really the one that was bringing money in. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't think that's true. She's still getting those, those old checks. While Brittany welcomed Simon's presence in her life, producers on the set of her movies weren't so thrilled. According to the Daily Beast, Simon interrupted shooting on the film Across the Hall so often that the producers had to concoct a plan to have him removed from set without upsetting Brittany. Brittany also began to develop uncharacteristic habits on set, like being unable to remember her lines. One studio exec told the Daily Beast, She was a space cadet most of the time when I saw her. A makeup artist likewise said, She had too many drugs and too little food. Drug rumors persisted throughout Britney's career, with her always denying them. Telling Jane Magazine in 2005 in regards to the allegations she had a cocaine problem, No, just for the record, I have never tried it my entire life. Despite the denials, however, and once promising career seemed to be dwindling as she descended further into alleged substance abuse, and many blamed her relationship with Simon. That's kind of the issue, is I think he had been, after the Factory Girl thing, he was kind of trying to weasel his way back into Hollywood, and was you... Uh, they alleged they were very in love, but from the outside, it appears he was using her to try to bully his way, like on that set of that movie. Well, if I show up and I start barking out orders, maybe they'll think of me as a producer and this is my way back in. It's also a way of controlling her, letting her mm-hmm. know, no matter how far away you are, I'm still the one making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Friends of the couple alleged that Simon controlled Britney's every move, 
including who she was allowed to talk to and what movie roles she was allowed to accept. There were also those that believed Simon married Brittany simply for her money, as he had allegedly done with his first wife, Simone. That whole marriage, too. He told, lied to her and said he was the heir to this huge fortune. The he, he, oh, Henry he Candy Bar? Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was not at all. And then she said she was in love. They got married. But then slowly but surely, like money problems started to arise. He needed to borrow money from her. And then even when they divorced, she wanted alimony. He couldn't pay it. Like he ended up being in debt to her like hundreds of thousands of dollars and I, some of it eventually got paid, but some of it never did. So if you've got all this money and you're the yeah. heir, like, why is why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Why are you jumping from lady to lady? Mm-hmm. Simon had a swindler's reputation around Hollywood, with many in the industry refusing to work with him and doing their part to warn others of the dangers associated with him. George Hickenlooper, director of the film Factory Girl, publicly denounced Simon's involvement with the film, despite what the British screenwriter claimed. Hickenlooper posted on a public Hollywood website. Simon Monjag had nothing to do with Factory Girl. He filed a frivolous lawsuit against us, making bogus claims that we had stolen his script. He held us literally hostage, and we were forced to settle with him as he held our production over a barrel. His post went on to say, Then, one night at 3 a.m., Brittany Murphy, who was a good friend and a girl I had come close to casting as Edie Sedgwick, called me in tears, begging me to take this posting down. It was going to ruin Monjack. I told Brittany it was the truth and warned her, as many others did, about Monjack, who had a long, long list of legal complaints against him. So he tried to tell everyone he basically wrote this screenplay. He sold it for millions of dollars, blah, blah, blah. It was his. He really didn't have much to do with it at all. In the end, they ended up giving him some sort of screen credit or a writer's credit just basically to shut him up and settle the case out of court. But nobody wanted to work with him. And the director said on that call with Brittany that he was like, do you really know this guy? I mean, do you really know this guy? You know, he's he's dangerous and I care about you. And she just refused to hear it and got mad and hung up. And, you know, we see what we want to see. And it's hard when you're in the middle of something. And you also he's controlling her and telling her, mm -hmm. like, you know, who knows what story she's getting fed by him about this same guy. So when you're in love, you don't want to believe those things about the person that you're in love with. Oh, for sure. And she lost her dad, you know, when she was formative years, you know, ages one yeah. through 12 or 13 and, the, and then was moved across the country kind of away from him. And you may have this, you know, kind of the feeling of I don't want to lose a person. I have abandonment. I don't sure. want to be abandoned. I want to lose even if it's not. He Simon's leaving her, but for her to leave him, well, I can't abandon him. I can't leave his side. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have those leftover, those leftover feelings. So yeah, it's hard when everybody's trying to tell you. And that I mean, I remember when they first started dating. Physically, everyone's just like, "What is this woman doing?" Yeah. Didn't Anne Hathaway date a swindler kind of a guy? I feel like Anne Hathaway. That was like a, a deal where for a brief time she either dated or was married to a guy, and he was like bouncing checks in Hollywood or something like that. And you just wonder, that is an excellent con man who can sort of worm his way into a starlet's heart and bid and figure that out That sounds familiar. I do know that happened to Kathy Griffin. Oh, really? She got swindled? When she had that show, she may still have it, I don't know, but My Life on the D-List, remember? I remember that. On E! Um, the guy she was married to on the show at the time, who was seemed super nice and they had a great relationship. Yeah, she ended up having to leave him because he was like stealing money from her and had all these like accounts she didn't know about and was taking her money and dumping it into it and was just it was crazy. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, that's you just you have to be careful. And I think what happens is you're in Hollywood and you're like, oh, he's a business person. And that's what he Monjak had positioned himself as that. He was the reason why they met is she was really obsessed with this novel and yeah. she wanted to turn a novel into a screenplay. And so he was like, oh, I'll meet with you because I've I wrote Factory Girl. So I'm mm -hmm. and I know how to sell a script and I'm a business guy. And so you don't know. I mean, you can't really vet that aside from, I guess, just asking around about him. But sometimes when something's too good to be true, people just want to believe it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. There were also rumors that a month prior to Brittany and Simon getting hitched, the Englishman was in trouble of losing his green card causing speculation that the wedding was all a ploy to keep him in the United States. 
Unsurprisingly, Simon adamantly denied this. Things seemed to get even worse for Brittany in November of 2009. She was replaced midway through filming The Caller by a different actress. Reportedly, Simon showed up to set completely inebriated. When producers tried removing him, Brittany objected, resulting in the producers deciding to let her go. Brittany, however, claimed this was fake and that she and the producers parted ways due to creative differences. Regardless of the reason, on November 29th, the two arrived at LAX but were unable to deplane, according to the Daily Beast. American Airlines called for an ambulance, and when first responders arrived, they found Simon incoherent on the aircraft. This is kind of repeated reports of him is that he would get, whether he was drunk or on prescription drugs or illegal drugs, something. He was not right. And he was a big guy and would like rage. Yeah. He claims that he had an asthma attack and that's why he couldn't get off the plane. He also said he has uh, he had seizures. He had like epilepsy yeah. and would suffer from seizures and stuff. And but that's one reason he claims he needed all these prescription drugs, which he was full of, as oh, yeah. was she. And I think he was pumping her full a lot of these prescription drugs and they were sharing drugs. And mm-hmm. that is not a good that's not a good cocktail. No, especially when you have someone. She weighed 115 pounds and he weighed. 200 close, close to 300 pounds probably mm-hmm. she said i think in the 911 call sharon's like they go how much can you move him how much does he weigh and she goes oh he weighs 270 pounds or something like that. i mean it's yeah he was up there yeah so if you have uh doses that are for someone of that weight and then you're sharing those with someone that's half that size yeah that's not he's good. like oh i take two i mean for her mm-hmm. she needs to take a half or whatever yeah mm-hmm it's almost like a pharmacist or a doctor should tell you what to take, how much of those you should take. You, yeah, you should probably just listen to them when it comes to taking prescription medicines. Throughout these issues, Brittany and Simon remained in their seemingly luxurious Hollywood mansion. But behind closed doors, things were much different. Simon's mother called Simon, Brittany, and Sharon. Terrible, terrible hoarders. The dining room was completely banked with their clothes. Footage from inside the house showed dozens of rows of metal clothes racks completely full and stacked against one another. Footage from the bathroom showed counters covered in beauty products and prescription drug bottles. On the Amazon Prime special autopsy, The Last Hour of Brittany Murphy, Simon's mother also claimed that the windows were breaking down from mold and couldn't be opened, saying, This was a place of unhealthiness. It didn't feel right. Simon's mother sounds like the Wicked Witch of the West. She's very British. She's very (laughs) cute. She She's, she sounds very nice on the on the show. She's welcome to like she welcomes interviews. Like it seems like she'll talk to anybody like that's willing to. And she doesn't ever have a bad thing to say about Britney. She always no, talks about how she's nice always she was. very complimentary. Yeah. Um. But dude, the footage. Did you watch the footage of their house? Oh yeah, I watched. Oh. First of all, this documentary, the ID Channel one or the Autopsy one, the ID Channel. Oh my god, not not the best, you guys. <laughs> oh my best. god. Do you, you know what? We're talking a lot about it, so you don't have to go watch it. We watched Correct. it for you. We did We did that service for you, so you don't have to waste an hour of your time going it to was, watch it. Yeah, it was, you know, for this, for our, just our, not this episode in general, but doing our show, the reason why I think you would agree we do it is because we pick topics we're interested in, and it's, mm-hmm. like, fun. Like, I actually get, we dig deep and we get into it, and the same with this. But the ID channel thing, it was, like, a slog it was for a me slog to, get to get there. The autopsy was it was clearly i don't think amazon produced it i think like a british channel produced it but it was you can tell when you watch something that doesn't have commercials when it was meant to have commercials because it'll be like they'll say something and then two seconds later they repeat it because like the human brain can't remember that yeah so it it does that a couple times but overall like they go really in depth in the autopsy the mom talks on there and they go in the footage of their house and everything but man that id channel one the id channel one is very over the top yes. to say the least the the crime journalists that they interview which they have like five of them mm-hmm. they interview are so over the top it's cringy to watch yes that's a good way to put it it's i'm cringy. like just talk like a normal person one of the guys on there and he goes he's like well let me tell you, a friend of mine knew the guy that wrote this movie that she did, and Brittany was smoking crack while she did the movie with Simon out behind the trailer. Well, the movie was produced like six years before she met Simon. Yeah. 
So it's like I can easily look on IMDb and know that you're full of shit. <laughs> they also talk about it as if they're the ones that broke the story and they're <laughs> breaking it to you right now. And you're like, this happened 10 years ago. We this all know forever. what what happened. But it's just, I don't know, man. Sometimes crime journalists, they they all sounded like Nancy Grace. That's yeah, what it was. Is that's what it was. My Achilles heel. Like, I, they're just so like. It's just so dramatic and over the top to where you're like, just be a normal person. Yeah, no one talks like that. No. And I'll like respect you more and you're the what you're saying will resonate more with me if you sound just like a level headed, reasonable person. And not like a tinfoil hat, like conspiracy. Yeah. I did like the autopsy guy because he would say, here is a really big conspiracy theory. But let me tell you scientifically why I think X or Y. And it was measured and backed by he would say why he felt ways, not like some people were saying that. Some yes. It's like you're talking like the announcer on a damn trailer. Yes. On a movie it, trailer. That's how they talked. It was just so sensational and bombastic Correct. that it yes. was hard to really like get behind it. I think but officially- there was some good information in it still. Correct. We mined it for good info. I think yeah. officially we're not going to be asked to do an ad for the show. <laughs> I think we've just shot ourselves in the foot of being spokespeople for the investigation. You know discovery. what? If you ever want to interview us as crime journalists, happy to or do so. Just w- we'll do our research and and yes. we'll we'll gladly converse on camera and let you know what we think about it. For sure. But yeah, I don't think I don't think they're gonna <laughs> want us to review it for money. No. Well, in addition, Brittany and Simon were incredibly paranoid about violations of their privacy. They hired a -a 24-hour-a-day security guard and set up cameras to surveil every possible corner of the house. At one point, Brittany called her dad, Angelo, and told him she feared that she was being stalked and that someone was constantly watching her. Simon told his mother, Linda, that the pair was frightened, though Linda believed the security in their home was way, way over the top. And this could be true. This could also be a symptom of drug use. Yep. The It was also very intense. They had a lot of cameras. 24-hour day security guard, man. That's, you know, the security guard's like, no one is stalking. Like, no one yeah. wants to come no, up here. No, he's just sitting there on his phone. Plugging watching. his paycheck. Yeah. On December 17, 2009, Brittany had come down with a cough and was fighting a virus with flu-like symptoms. She had returned home from a movie set in Puerto Rico feeling ill, but she fought the infection with over-the-counter medications, her husband's inhaler, and prescription drugs. This don't take someone else's drugs, man. Don't take, don't ever take anybody else's drugs. <laughs> two days later, on December 19th, 2009, Brittany was finally able to get some rest. The cocktail of depressants she took helped her fall asleep. But around 3 a.m., Brittany suffered from a coughing attack that woke her up. She experienced shortness of breath and headed outside to get some fresh air, where she collapsed on the balcony. Simon and Sharon put her back to bed, but refused to call an ambulance. And this was part of their paranoia because she didn't want to be seen as sickly so she could get hired at jobs. So she didn't want to go to the doctor. Like, they're not, they didn't want to call an ambulance. They didn't want to go to the hospital. My thing is, is if you're rich, there's like doctors that will just come to your house. Yeah. And I think possibly some speculation would be they didn't want to call someone because they've got a lot of drugs in the house Mm. and there's a pharmacy's worth of prescription drugs all over their bedroom all over their nightstands and everything also if they're all hopped up on stuff they're not thinking straight you know that's true too apparently that was they were passing the pills around not just between simon and Brittany, but also the pharmacist gave very candid interviews and was like, they had more drugs than I do and I run a pharmacy. I was like, are you allowed to talk about people's <laughs> like private? I mean, I guess. I don't know. I, I just am I like patient client privilege. He's like, doesn't extend to pharmacists. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. <laughs> I guess so. I His don't know. Seems something like Buddy or Bubba too. We'll have to look it up, but it's very, <laughs> we'll quote him in the next episode. Bubba the pharmacist <laughs> does not give a fuck about HIPAA no, laws. Apparently. Not at all. Around 7.30 a.m. on December 20th, 2009. Brittany woke up and stumbled to the bathroom to vomit. Her breathing was labored, and she was burning hot from a fever. Sharon headed into the bathroom to comfort her daughter. When she leaned in for a hug, Brittany collapsed, unconscious in her arms. Sharon screamed for Simon, who put Brittany in the shower to try and revive her with cold water. When that didn't work, Sharon called 911 to report that her daughter was unconscious on the bathroom floor, telling the dispatcher 
My daughter's passed out. She's ice cold and her hands are turning blue. A hysterical Sharon told the 911 operator that she could not rouse Brittany and begged for an ambulance to come. The operator reassured her and asked whether any objects were obstructing Brittany's airways. When Sharon went to check Brittany's mouth, she exclaimed to the operator, She just threw up tons of stuff, tons and tons of water. On the call, Sharon can be heard calling out to her daughter, Brittany, please come back. Then crying, I have two other people with me and we all think she's dead. It is unclear who the second person was, but it is assumed it was her live-in bodyguard. When paramedics arrived at 8.09 a.m., Brittany's vitals were incredibly weak. Just before declaring her dead, the responders detected a slight pulse. They attempted CPR at the house and decided to rush Brittany to a nearby hospital. Simon and Sharon jumped into their car and followed close behind. At Cedars-Sinai Hospital, Brittany was attended to by a team of doctors who tried everything they could to save her life. Sadly, their efforts were not enough, and at 10.05 a.m., Brittany Murphy was declared dead. She was 32 years old. At the news of her death, both Simon and Sharon became inconsolable. According to Simon's mother, when he called his mother to share the news, he was totally and utterly devastated. Oh, man. It all had kind of unfolded pretty quickly from 7.30, and they're trying to help her call the ambulance. The 911 call, of course, is heartbreaking because she's... She's I mean, just, she's, yeah, she's yeah. hysterics as any mother exactly. would be. Yeah, and they're trying everything, and she's she just keeps, as much as the 911 person's talking to her, she just keeps yelling, like, Brittany, please come back, please wake up, please, please. You know, she's probably just feels helpless. Oh, yeah. It always bothers me when 911 operators, when you hear those calls, I get that they're trying to calm people down and get them to be level-headed so they can do their job and possibly save their life. But so many times they sound so callous and just like they could give a shit what's going on. Mm -hmm. This guy kind of sounds like that. He's just like, ma'am, can you calm down? I can't, ma'am. Like, it's just so like, you can still like be direct while being compassionate and empathetic (laughs) because you you hear those 911 calls too so it is possible no there are tons of them like that it's just unfortunate the celebrity ones a lot of times are the ones we end up hearing are the ones that are more yeah he the person that's on the the other 911 call that she has to make six months later is kind of like what what are you saying but then about part way through he's he just hears how sad she is and he's like hey you're doing a great job yeah i mean (laughs) that's what you need you need somebody that's like they're not yelling at you, but is trying to like be sympathetic to what you're going through. It's just a high stress. I imagine. I wonder what. Oh, I'm like, sure it's very high stress. The mental kind of like mental health rates are for that job. That would be because you would again. You kind of feel helpless. I mean, you're doing as much as you can, sending ambulance or sending whoever, but you're sitting there hearing someone die, and you can't like reach through the phone. Yeah, I imagine it's also one of those jobs where you have to compartmentalize and almost kind of put up a mental wall yeah. to separate yourself so you don't i would be the worst 911 operator on the planet because i would just sob uncontrollably the whole time <laughs> yeah. and would not get anything accomplished i would just cry with the person on the phone so i'm sure you it takes a certain men, uh mentality and we all, we need them so yeah God it's like, almost like them. being like a pilot or something where if the shit is going down you're the one that's like it's okay i will figure this out it's fine although to give yourself credit, when we were in the Beetle, back when I had the Beetle, <laughs> and we were driving back from uh, a party, and I was, it was raining, and a car literally spun out, and it, like, crashed into a median, and I was, like, going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You were, like, it's okay. Go forward. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. <laughs> so you were, like, very, you're, like, direct and, like, clear under pressure, and I was calmed immediately by your oh, voice. thank so, you. So don't, well, don't I give yourself that. Yeah, don't give yourself uh, the short end of the stick here. You're you would be Thank great. Thank you. <laughs> Talking I someone do, down. I do. There are. Um, while I'm in my everyday life, uh, constantly panicking when I get involved, when I do get thrust into like high stress situations or dangerous situations, a weird calm does come over me where mm-hmm. I can kind of like it's happened before when I worked at. Um, a domestic violence shelter. There were a couple times where like things happened there that where I had to be super level headed. But I think if I was like, it would be certain calls. If like a kid called, because oh, yeah. 
they were seeing their dad beat the shit out of their mom or something like those things I think would like, and maybe not even at the time, but I couldn't get those things out of my head afterwards. So like Mm -hmm. you said, I wonder what the mental health rates for that kind of stuff is. Yeah. Everyone should get free therapy that does 911 calls. Seriously. Yes. Their insurance should absolutely cover whatever kind of therapy they want. Yes. So Brittany, according to Simon, had been suffering from laryngitis for several days before this happened. And even the day before she died, he said they just laid in bed and watched movies and she drank tea and and ate soup and stuff. And then he says in a later interview, like, I don't know what to do about laryngitis. So we just laid in bed. It's like, call the freaking doctor. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing? Like, even the medical examiner said later, like, if someone had called a doctor or or an ambulance like the first time she passed out, she'd probably still be alive. That's exactly what they said. By the time that morning, it was way too late. But they said even the day before or a couple hours before they could have mm-hmm. caught it with it. Just what they were going to do is put her on a massive antibiotics and a bunch of like uh, saline, you know, like hydration yeah. and everything. And and she just he, they just kept and he goes, oh, it was all herbal. It's like, really? No, it was not. You gave her your inhaler. Mm-hmm. It was a damn pharmacy in there. But again, that's a form of control. He's like, we don't need doctors. I'm the smartest person here. I can just tell you how to fix all mm-hmm. of this, you know? And she's so weak. She's this frail little thing that you're just like, I just have, all I can do is lay in bed. I'm just trying to survive at this point. And you're like, okay. Ed Winter, the assistant chief coroner of Los Angeles County, oversaw the autopsy and investigation. Winter specifically handled the deaths of high-profile celebrities, including those of Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston. After inspecting the actress's residence, the investigators began interviewing those involved. They started with Simon, who, according to Winter, seemed to be under the influence of something. Simon paced nervously and was kind of stoic, kind of rambling, according to Winter. Although Winter does concede that under extreme stress and grief, people will react in many different ways, from crying to just being silent. But uh, he appeared confused. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, again, people will react in different ways under extreme stress and grief. But he seemed almost nervous about what would be discovered instead Mm -hmm. of doing whatever he could to get answers. Yeah, it it was one of those where we have to find out what happened. It's like, I'm just don't worry about it. Yeah, it's (laughs) It's like like, we know what happened. We We just we're good. Yeah, we actually do have to find out. Mm hmm. Simon insisted that there not be an autopsy performed on Brittany, reportedly weeping and worrying that they're going to cut her open. In a bizarre interview with Larry King that was meant to clear his name from any suspected involvement, Simon gave even more illogical and creepy reasons for initially balking at the idea of an autopsy, remarking on her pristine body that was curvy in all the right places. That's not something you say about your dead wife. Well, it's not when even it comes about to the, yeah. It wasn't even about her. It was like her corpse. Yeah, yeah. At that point, and you're describing the corpse. Man, have you seen that Larry King interview? Uh, I saw a clip of it on the um on YouTube. It is it's bizarre. Cringy. Yeah, it's it's, it's both Simon and Sharon, mm-hmm. and she. They both just seem like so much of it is an act. Mm -hmm. I read this really interesting and we'll post it in the show notes article from a psychologist perspective about her answers and replies throughout the interview. It has the transcript and then it has when she answers like this and she interrupts herself or will just give one word answers. It kind it breaks down like why she's doing that and how it shows like deception or that she's because it's like, when someone asks you a question, if you're replying honestly, you don't have to think about what you're saying. But if you reply and you start interrupting yourself or like change thoughts really quickly, it shows that you're thinking as you're answering, which is a sign of lying. It was all like fascinating. It broke down Ooh. the entire way she talked in this interview. And I was like, it makes you look at it. It makes you look at a lot of things <laughs> a lot differently. Everyone's going to be having conversations with their friends and be analyzing everything they're saying. but it. I mean, from that perspective, it seems like she's definitely omitting a lot of information and how you mentioned earlier that she has this idea of how things went, regardless of the actual facts. It very much comes out in this interview, too. Like when Larry King straight up asks her, 
so did uh she have a dad growing up and she's like no not at all he and he's like where where what happened to him and she doesn't really answer she just says she all she had was me like and so again like making it about her mm-hmm. and not really giving a clear cut answer like this article pointed out like her narrative is very much controlled about her and Britney's bond and like what are you trying to imply to people like it comes from a place also of like insecurity that you think people would think like you weren't close or you weren't a good mother or something like that it was very fascinating but the whole thing is bizarre as hell her behavior and it is so freaking weird and like her and simon's relationship is so freaking weird they're strange together they turned Mm -hmm. into kind of a strange pair but i wonder talking about her narrative in her mind if after britney started making the money and started taking care of her she has to have this narrative in her mind that, no, I was a really good mom, despite mm-hmm. the fact that my kid kind of took care of me financially or whatever. So that's interesting. Sure. It, that- it really is. But Larry King asks, like, why didn't you guys want an autopsy? And she just, like, starts crying. And she's like, I just, I can't, I can't even imagine. And Simon's like, how am I supposed to go in to a grieving mother and say they want to cut your daughter open and blah, 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 all of her pristine curves? It's, again. Anyone that wants to know what happened to this 32-year-old woman that just dropped dead, the autopsy is going to show. Why wouldn't you want to have that done unless you're trying to hide something? I say unless you know what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's very bizarre. The investigators searched the house, and in the bedroom, they found approximately 90 different prescription pill bottles in Simon's name on his side of the bed. In addition, Brittany had a huge assortment of prescription pills on her side of the bed. These included habit-forming painkillers, as well as pills prescribed for depression and anxiety. After her death, Simon told ABC News that She was on herbal remedies that wouldn't speed up her heart. There was nothing here that could endanger her. There was prescription medication in the house for her female time and some cough syrup. That was it. When pressed whether her death could have been the result of a drug overdose, Simon responded, I can get rid of that one right now. Anybody that refers to that as your female time, <laughs> what is Come what? Are, on. What are we at here? Come on. She definitely. I mean, there is straight up footage that shows pill bottles everywhere. So it is. there was a lot more than herbal remedies going on in that house, and even on part of the nine one one call, one of the, the the dispatcher asked Sharon. Could she have overdosed on, could this be drug related? And she says, there's a good chance her prescription drugs got messed up. It happens all the time. God. Like, I mean, because they're all, I mean, I imagine they're all sharing drugs. They were, and, they were. Yeah. And just like passing stuff around. And yeah, you can't keep track of all that. And some anxiety and depression medication is not to be used with like painkiller medication. And you combine those you will have a drug overdose, accidental like, or, or on purpose. The, with her lungs being opened by the inhaler, and plus she was on the depression, anxiety medicine, the pain pills for her back, the pain pills for her lady problems. And then on top of that, why can't sleep? Oh, well, here, take my anti-seizure medicine. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you start getting into, you just don't know what will what cross mixes with what. Mm-mm. Despite initial objections, the family allowed the autopsy to be performed. When the results were released, coroner determined that Brittany died from a combination of pneumonia and iron deficiency and multiple drug intoxication. Although initial media reports indicated she was abusing illegal drugs like crack, cocaine, and heroin, the autopsy revealed that the drugs were all prescription, as her husband had previously reported. And I think your brain goes, oh, well, it's prescription, so it's not bad. Oh, sure. That's but why prescription uh, uh, prescription drug addiction is so prevalent among so many. So you're like, well, my doctor prescribed this for me, so i allowed to take it. It can't be bad to take it. I didn't go illegally buy this from someone. It's a one huge of, epidemic. Oh, for sure. And one of the highest families I ever knew, they were uh, very, very devoutly religious, very devoutly religious to the point that their son went smoked marijuana and they like shunned him for weeks. Like it was and they were all constantly fucked up on hydrocodone. 
because the doctor mm-hmm. prescribed it. Because my I have neck problems. So literally, it was like you would go and have a drink after dinner or go and have a smoke after dinner. They finished dinner and we're like, okay, whoosh, open the bottle, boom, gonna take pop it down, my pill. and then I'm going to sit here and watch Wheel of Fortune and let it let it ride. And it's like, yeah. well, I'm not, you know, our son was doing marijuana, and so he has to get shunned from the family. But, oh, no, the doctor gave me this, so it's fine, and it's fine. And it's like, well, may sometimes you need that. You know, if you have, at one time I had an infection the size of a golf ball in my uh, wisdom teeth that needed to get taken out. It hurt so bad, and they couldn't do surgery because of, I was like flying back and forth from school. So they had to give me hydrocodone because it was that it was like in my brain pain. It hurts so bad. But guess mm-hmm. what? That's that's not like an everyday funzy pill that I took. No, and it shouldn't be for anyone. Well, I'm and also it was mine, it, so I can't I really? can't take it. Yeah, I broke out in a rash. <sighs> Damn. Found that out the hard way. Ew. I was in a car accident and I cracked my ribs. God damn, do you want to talk about pain? Mm-hmm. And. They gave it to me, and at first I was fine, but after it built up in my system for a few days, I just broke out in this full body rash. Jeez Louise. So now I can't take it. But, yeah, those um, prescription drug addictions are dangerous game. While the coroner's report seemed pretty cut and dry, ruling the death accidental, not everyone was convinced that Brittany's death was so easily explained. Rumors of foul play began to circulate with even Angelo Bertolotti, Brittany's father, telling the media that he believed his daughter was murdered. A media circus ensued, ripe with multiple theories on how the young starlet met her untimely death. And just when it seemed things couldn't get any more bizarre, six months later, another person would lose their life in the same alleged manner Brittany had. Her husband, Simon Monjack. That was weird when that happened. Yep, and that's what we'll get into... On the next episode, part two, that whole thing and theories surrounding what could have happened to her if it wasn't so easily explained and some other weird stuff that cropped up. Yeah. Well, what do we think about this one? Well, this was a per- person I think that you it's almost like be careful what you ask for, right? You want to become famous. You want to be a Hollywood star. You think you've married a famous producer, screenwriter. You think it's all great. and then. I think it starts, it's almost like a slippery slope, right? You initially meet someone and maybe you're partying a little together and then it's like, let me give you a little bit of this. Let me give you a little mm-hmm. bit of that to the point where she's, the autopsy report is astounding the amount of drugs lot, that are in her. A lot of drugs, a lot of drugs, especially for being as tiny as she was, man. And for stuff that she did not have, like she's on anti-seizure medication and stuff that yeah. she was not supposed to be taking. And so no, I think it's, it unfortunately was... You know, it's you You see it initially and you think, well, I would never become, you know, I would never take 14 different prescriptions. That's crazy. But you start off taking one single prescription mm-hmm. and then you add one and then you add one and it just starts to get a little bit easier, a little bit easier. And I do think there is a mental uh, kind of ease that you feel when you're like, oh, but it's it's fine. It's from a prescription. Like, I'm not sure. Crack. It's fine. Well, so once you start taking those, you become dependent on them. Oh, for sure. So then it's just like you can't just stop because you suffer withdrawal and you get even more sick. So it's this terrible cycle. But yeah, like you said, nobody starts off. I'm going to down these 14 pills right now. It's a slow, slow burn. But Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of how his whole relationship with her was, was he weaseled his way in and then he was he was in there and. Uh, Costanza, she just couldn't get him out of her head, her head. And he was just kind of there. And I mean, he had such a terrible reputation around Hollywood and in an industry that's filled with so many swarmy people for so many to agree that like, but this one is actually his name is Simon Conjack, not Monjack. Like, yeah, the writing was on the wall. And unfortunately, she was just kind of blind to it. I think, too, I mean, I my friend of mine said, hey, I'm going on a date. This is the guy's name. And I just immediately ran a criminal background search. I didn't ask her. I wasn't going to tell. I would have been like, hey, I got some information. If you want to know it, let me know. Um, I probably would have told her. Let me just say that. But in this case, he had, like, criminal issues. He had reputational issues. He was sued. So it wasn't even like there. he was just kind of wronging people and had never been caught. It was if she had just paid a private investigator a little bit of money and said, tell me what you can find out about this guy. That would have saved her a lot of heartbreak, but almost like her mom who wants to believe what she wants to believe. 
this guy comes in her life and is like, you're the most beautiful, dynamic, amazing woman. And you think, well, he must be great. You know, if he's not great, then I'm not great because he thinks I'm great. And you Mm -hmm. kind of you puff yourself up that way and don't want to know the truth. So you told her and she he didn't have a criminal. No, he didn't have a criminal. Oh, he didn't. I thought you said he had all of these things against. No, I'm saying Simon had all those things against him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and people did tell her and she was like, no, I'm not going to hear it. So Mm -hmm. I don't think there was anything that could have been said to her that was was going to change things. And unfortunately, uh, they didn't get to spend too much time together before she met a very untimely end. We'll get into, yeah, we'll get into more of it next week on the second part of this. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We are a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, get some sweet perks like a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and Patreon-exclusive video and audio content, like our weekly mix bags where we share three of our favorite things of the week. For more details on membership tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner to join today. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout out. Speaking of shout outs, thank you so much to Caitlin Linehan for the amazing fan art and kind note. The beautiful hand-drawn map of Texas featuring all the local cases we've covered is currently hanging in our studio. We also want to thank Chloe Wilkinson for the cool and creepy buttons and patches, and Emily for all of our beautiful self-care products, as well as Hannah for all the fun Tinder swag, including a cool dog bow tie. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. It's so much fun to get stuff from people, and uh, especially in these times, nice little pick-me-up. So... It's hard times for everyone, and we appreciate you guys so much for thinking of us. I we really do. I love the map. I love it so much. Oh, uh, it's so it's so cool. Uh, yes. I'll post a picture on the Instagram. Yes, please. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like T-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop in the top right corner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at? I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Instagram at Heather versus the World and on Twitter at MCK versus the World. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Rachel Burledge. Amanda Trivet. Amanda Austin, also the owner of Dallas Comedy House and a dear friend of ours. Yes. Thank you so much, Amanda. Also, if you're in the Dallas area, check out DCH or DallasComedyHouse.com because they've got a lot of fun stuff happening that you can uh, support from ways at home. Or um, if you're comfortable going out, you can also do that, too. DallasComedyHouse.com. Corey Humany. Dana. Cassandra Weishow. E. Katie Finch. Shelby Ragland. Courtney Andrada. Aria Kirby. Susan Hurley Afifi. Amanda Conger. Kim Schwab. Caitlin Evans. Lindsay Robinson. Holly Norman. A Lovely Death. Lacey Williams. Danny Ray. Brianna Langhar. Brittany Hill. Karina Palmier. Lindsay Smith. Catherine Schroeder. Devin Halpine. Michelle Berry. Betsy W. Karen Asiu. Karen Johnson. Jesse. Allison Bedell. Anna. Paige Lyon. Laura Stewart. Strange Beautiful Love. Simone Alston. Eileen Charlotte. Anderia Farley. Danielle Osborne. Helene Fuchs. Tabitha McAlley's Gergens. Caitlin Welty. Lydia Wagner. Stephanie McGarry, Ruth Akers, Samantha Zimlick, Nicole Crane, Jamie Garman, Ashley McEwen, Courtney Tadanio, Jennifer Austin, Carissa Bailey, 
Olive Hughes, Holland Henderson, Aaron, Jessamia Zinger, Tammy Dottisman. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show, especially during these times. Thank you for being so forgiving if we mispronounced your names. We do the best. We even looked some of these up. We so. literally were looking <laughs> yeah. them up and practiced in advance. So that's even worse. We, we hope we got some some of them right. We apologize if we if we didn't. But nevertheless, we love you all so much. We couldn't do this without you. And stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Mwahaha. Sinister. Hope.